Coming up this hour, we're going to update ourselves on COVID and the election results. And then we're going to be joined by Glenn Packiam, author of the new book, Worship and the World to Come. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Ian, usually I'm like, hey, on this beautiful sunny day. Uh, but my wife just texted me a couple minutes ago and, did you know we're under a tornado watch? I said, no. So I did know that. Your uh, wife texted me as well. So tell her thank you. <laughs> she's, she just like, said, let people know the weather. <laughs> she's very accommodating. I appreciate that a lot. But yeah, that's like the last warm day here. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to we're going to throw a tornado watch at you today. So hopefully, uh, what was it earlier in the summer where you and I were mid recording and we had to go run to our basements? <laughs> and oh, so, right. I forgot about that. Uh, hopefully that does not become the case today, but uh, we shall see. So, uh, all right, man, I, like we always say, there, we don't really tend to do a very newsy show, but we've been starting our first segments of the show just kind of. What are the big stories of the day? And uh, I just labeled these two different things, COVID and the election. So Mm -hmm. uh, which one would you like to tackle first? Both really happy stories. So let's get them out of the way. But you you want to talk (laughs) COVID first or the contested, weird, strange election results first? Which one you want to go with first? Uh, Brian, I'd like to choose neither. Please and thank you. (laughs) Is that an option? I I don't get that as an option. We got to go back to your cat story from a couple of days ago. That was a lot happier. What was, what was my ca- Oh, what was it like the psychology of cats or something? It was. It was fascinating and it put a <laughs> smile on my face, not like COVID or the election. All right, let's jump off uh with COVID here. Okay. Uh and uh two main things, very local. You and I both live in DuPage County and yesterday, uh DuPage County along with multiple others, Kane County, Will County, we're moved all the way back to tier two restrictions, which really limits gatherings and a lot of schools are going back. We have another article here from the Daily Herald. More DuPage County schools are going all remote. I would say uh, anecdotally, all three of my children beginning on Monday will be completely remote for the wow. rest of November. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I'm wondering where your mindset is at just as things uh, are uh, going backwards uh, and people can argue, ah, you know, numbers, it's it's going backwards. You can make a decision about what that means for your life. But uh, things are definitely going backwards in our state. And I'm wondering, does that discourage you kind of just roll with the punches? What does that do to your psyche as uh, we see these numbers going a little bit crazy? Here? Oh, do you really want to know what things do, do to my psyche? That feels like <laughs> dangerous territory. It is interesting, though. Remember, I mean, for months and months and months, there's a lot of people saying, you just wait. We're going to have Election Day and then COVID is going to disappear. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it seems like almost the opposite is true. And I wonder, too, I haven't taken the time. To actually delve into like the the uh, conspiracy theory du jour, so I'm not really quite sure. I'm I'm assuming somebody somewhere is saying, "Oh, this recent spike is actually because of this camp or that camp or the contested election," which is the other thing that you're yeah. wanting to talk about in this segment. So I, yeah, I don't know. There's um, again not having school age kids. I feel at least a little bit shielded from some of the other uh, in as hybrid, now they're out again. Like I'm I'm grateful for that. There's part of me again aside from just the obvious uh heartache of like lives lost and people's uh, health forever affected 
Uh, we're heading into colder months and I have, you know, mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. little ones who and there's already so few things we can do anyway. And to, right. to see trends like this again, this is a distant second from the from the the primary concern about people's lives and health. But it is sort of like, oh gosh, what are we what are we going to do? You know, what is that? What is that rhythm going to look like in November, December, January? I, I wouldn't say necessarily it's any new level of like fear. I don't feel that necessarily, but it is yeah. certainly like a. It's additional question marks at the very least. Yeah, it's so weird because as we talked about yesterday, I I just feel like I know a ton more people who have it or uh, some of the school, like the email we got from our school yesterday as to why they're going remote. It was it wasn't because of the countywide numbers. It literally was because we're missing so many staff members and students right now. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Mm. And, uh, and and so that's why they're doing it. And then you've got kind of this other stream where we talked about the vaccine yesterday and right. then at CNN today, uh, Lily came out, uh, uh, Eli Lily came out about the monoclonal uh, kind of getting emergency FDA approval as a treatment for COVID. So it's like it's just a weird deal right now because it feels like we're uh, we as a as a medical community are a lot better right now at dealing with it. Uh, but yet it's running really rampant at the same time. And so it's kind of a weird, like you said, I'm not scared. Like it, like if I get it, I'm in big trouble, but, uh, but it certainly seems to be creeping closer and closer. I'll do that. And then you've got the election, mm-hmm. uh, which was, uh, what was it like three months ago? Oh no, wait, it was a week ago today. <laughs> time <laughs> was, is just a construct, Brian. <laughs> it was one week ago today. And it's like a bizarro world right now, right? Like uh, you've got, uh, Donald Trump and his people around him, uh, they're getting they're doubling down, tripling down right now on the we're going to win. Once us all gets counted, we're going to win. And uh, President-elect Joe Biden gave a uh, press conference today in which he kind of almost laughed that off. Uh, there's all these articles about what's the damage this is doing to the democracy and to President Trump. And uh, but then Mitch McConnell just going, he kind of shrugged it off and and you. Uh, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but but the place I'm at right now is that like somewhere some adults in the room would get together and just be like, hey, uh, here's here's the way this is going to work, because there is the transition period that's supposed to be going on. And it's just not going on right now. And that's troublesome. And again, I believe that you could be doing a transition while still figuring things out in court. Right. But man, I. I guess none of this should be surprising. In fact, uh, President Trump kind of tipped his hand before the election that this is how it was going to go. But it's still baffling to me. And and it is when you sit down and think about it, besides just like, are you kidding me? It is troublesome uh, that not just President Trump and his kids and others, but but that Republican congressmen and people in the Senate are like, nope, we're behind them. Mike Pompeo today, uh, Mike Pompeo today said, yeah, there'll be a smooth transition. And then he paused and said to Donald Trump's second term, like they're, they still think this is going to happen. And so uh, I don't know. Do you feel like this is doing damage right now or it's just annoying? Where are you at with all this? Gosh, I wish I had a, a better like made for radio answer for you. I w- uh, what I'm kind of curious about is do you and again, there's a, a lot of politicizing happening, obviously, and you can you know almost predict the messaging based on the side. Do you think that those in Trump's camp have legitimate cause for the courses of action they're taking, or is it all about optics? Like for the, for the people that are standing behind the current process, do you think when they 
they actually believe that is the best thing to do? Two, do you think they actually have um, probable cause and, and uh, a rational reason for continuing uh, this line of action? Or is it just about optics? Like, I'm just trying to buy time, you know, to an end that maybe we don't actually know. Where, where do you land in that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that they actually do believe that that they could get something turned around here by force of will. Mm-hmm. But it's also optics. Somebody, there was a report out that President Trump just doesn't want to be seen as a quote unquote loser of the election. Uh, but I saw something fascinating today that said of the eight closest contested states in the presidential election of the top eight, uh, Joe Biden won four of them with uh, he won the mail in ballots in four of them. And Donald Trump won the mail in ballots in the other four. Like this whole right. narrative that right. like all the mail in ballots swung this for Biden just isn't true. And right. so I think there's some optics. There's this. That's why I don't understand the people, uh, the other Republicans like allowing this to go on. But, uh, yeah, it's not surprising. And and I, I'm starting to get a little bit uh, worried. It's the wrong word. But like. Before, it just seemed like there was going to be posturing, and then eventually they were going to say, we don't think we lost, but for the good of the country or whatever. And I just don't think that's going to happen anymore. Someone's mm-hmm. going to need to have to step in here, whether it be just when they certify the election or whatever else. I think people should be able to go to the courts with their problems. Don't get me wrong. That's why they're set up. But the posturing is is a little bit uh, disappointing. I'll put it at that. So mm-hmm. those are two major news items right now, COVID and the election. Uh, get them out of the way, but they are big deals right now. Yeah. And so uh, coming up for the rest of the hour, we're excited to be joined by Glenn Packiam. Uh He's a pastor, author, worship leader, all sorts of great stuff. And we are super excited to talk to Glenn. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined for the rest of the hour uh, by Glenn Packiam. Glenn is a pastor out in Colorado, also the author of six books, including Worship and the World to Come. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. It is, it is certainly our pleasure. Before we jump into all sorts of things we want to talk to you about, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself to our audience, however you would like. Sure. Well, I've been on staff at the same church here in Colorado Springs for 20 years. Wow. I now serve as one of the associate senior pastors, which I think if you just stick around long enough, they keep inventing titles for you. <laughs> I, uh, we're, we're a multi-congregational church, so we have live you know, live preaching, live uh, ministry at uh, seven different congregations. I lead one of them, our downtown congregation. And then I help our senior pastor by providing oversight to some of, to the other offsite congregations. So we, we stay, we try to stay pretty full on mission here, but with good rhythms and all of that. And um, yeah. I love that. There's another book that you wrote called Blessed, Broken, Given. And in it, you use this phrase, or you talk about the, the notion of sacramental imagination, I, I, I love that phrase. Could you unpack a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, for many of us, we, you know, we're not from church backgrounds that talk about sacraments, right. although we kind of know, you know, communion and all of that. And really the, the early idea behind sacraments is that it's just, it's a visible sign of an invisible grace. It's, it's this kind of uh, tangible thing. And I, I'm in a non-denominational church uh, with a charismatic kind of background. So, there's, you know, we have our own versions of this when we lay hands on people to pray for mm-hmm. one another, or maybe even use anointing oil or, you know, those are those are examples of a sacramental imagination. That doesn't mean those things are 
uh, sacrament with a capital S. It just means we're using something from the material world, from the physical world to speak of something spiritual. And what I think is a sacramental imagination actually uh, is a better way to unite what we have sometimes divided into natural versus supernatural. Mm. And so we tend to think of, you know, you got the natural world and then we've got the supernatural world and God is upstairs somewhere. But the Hebrew imagination in the scriptures is much more uh, overlapping than that. God's space and human space overlapped, interlocked at the temple. Mm. Uh, And and in, in key places, you have Jacob in Genesis saying, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. You know, so uh, it's Isaiah hearing the song of the angels saying the whole earth is full of his glory. So there's a sense in which creation was made to be a container for the glory of God. Mm. And yes, even though the world is fallen, there are these traces of grace and glory all around us. So a sacramental imagination says, can we have a redeemed imagination? Can we view this uh, with new eyes? Can we begin to uh, remember and imagine the purpose for which these things were made? So bread and wine were d- don't become something other than what they are in order to be, quote unquote, holy. Hmm. They, in a way, become what all of creation was made to be. Hmm. They become these carriers of God's presence. And so uh, the whole idea of the book is to even begin to see our lives that way, that our ordinary, common, physical, material lives are actually containers of carriers of the glory and grace of God. I love that. Mm. Uh, the book, as I said, uh, was called is called Blessed, Broken, and Given. And, and just what does it mean even on a, on a big level? What's it mean to be blessed, broken, and given? Yeah, those are words that, you know, you hear in, in Christianese or in church world uh, a, a lot. And we sometimes have our own versions of what we think that means. You know, the word blessed sometimes becomes a synonym for I'm living, um, you know, my best life. I'm mm-hmm. taking the best vacations, you know, hashtag blessed. <laughs> but, 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 but when we go back to the beginning, when God looked at the world that he had made and it says he blessed it and he called it good. That's what I have in mind. It's it's to return us to our creational purpose, our creational design and intent. And I think this is what Paul's trying to say in Ephesians 1 when he says God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He, he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. So there's a sense when you give your life over to Jesus, even though you may not see it or recognize it or realize mm-hmm. it, you have been returned to this creational goodness, to this place where God's word over you is a word of blessing. Many people think God's first word over them is, you dirty, rotten sinner, right, you know? Right. Uh, forgetting that, man, the story begins with God's first word over us saying you're blessed. So that's an important first word. And then the word broken speaks to the frailty that we feel because of our mortality, because of our finiteness. But it also speaks to our failure, the moments where we do actually sin. And then it's it's the broken word also speaks to the fallenness of the world around us, the pain that we experience in the world around us. And and so being blessed doesn't mean that you won't ever experience brokenness. It, it but it does mean that you can place your brokenness in Jesus's hands mm. and it it becomes something different. Not only does uh, we, do we experience a kind of wholeness where we need that, but also brokenness becomes a kind of openness. It opens us up to the grace of God. It opens us right. up to the work of God in community and in others, vulnerability, honesty, confession. All those become redemptive themes because we, we know we are blessed. And so we're free now to place our brokenness mm-hmm. in Jesus's hands. And then that third word, what he does with that is he gives us for the sake of the world bread uh, that is not broken cannot be shared. Mm-hmm. 
And in a similar way, when Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it. Many of us want purpose. We want to be part of what God is doing in the world. Uh, but we kind of want God to sort of close an eye to the brokenness in our own lives, the pain, the failure, the frailty of our own life. But what if Jesus actually wants to use those very things to say, no, mm. give me that, give me that. And out of that will come uh, purpose. Out of that will come meaning. Out of that will be what I give for the life of the world. Well, and what, what I love about your writing and your teaching is you actually, in a lot of ways, don't sound like a non-denominational guy, like to be in the context that you are, but to, then to also talk about sacramental imagination. And you, and you also talk about communion, the Lord's table, and mm-hmm. seeing it not just simply as a practice, the way that many of us do, but also as like a paradigm for seeing our life in Christ. Can you talk to me a little more about like why that's so significant, why you keep coming back even just to the, the bread metaphor in your book? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So yeah, I am at a non-denominational church, but six years ago, I was ordained as an Anglican priest, but mm. but in a way sort of released or recommissioned uh, to continue serving in my non-denominational context. But the truth is, at our church, we, we began about seven or eight years ago, began to do weekly communion as a church, and it changed us. It, it didn't just become a central practice. It became a central uh, paradigm mm. um, um, that, that, that began to show us, okay, this is who we actually are as a church. So we would preach differently. Uh, We began to realize, look, the hero of the story needs to be Jesus. Mm. Uh, It's not about what we can do better, but what Christ has done and what by the power of the spirit he is now doing in and through us. And all of that, all of those movements come together at the table. Um, So it it, it is at the table that that the ordinary elements of bread and wine um, begin to to speak of Christ's death and, and his resurrection, begin to speak of his presence. And in a very similar way, this is what's meant to happen with the church. So, you know, bread is called the body of Christ, but the church is called the body of Christ. Right. So there's a there's a there's a crossover in that metaphor and that imagery there where we can begin to say, what if the church is what Jesus takes into his hands and blesses and breaks and gives? And so as we've embraced that, we realize, you know what, when we when we gather in worship, that's kind of like where we rehearse our blessedness. And when we connect with one another in community and home groups and all of that, that's where we're living out our our brokenness, opening up our brokenness to one another. And then when we serve in the community, that's when Jesus is giving us um, for the sake of our own city. So each week when we come to the Lord's table, it's not just a practice, but it actually becomes this paradigm for understanding the individual's life in Christ but also the church's life in the world. Glenn, as we said, you recently released this book, Worship and the World to Come, and it's it's about uh, worship and hope. And I'm just curious, background, what led you to pursue this topic in the first place? Well, yeah, it, it seems like an interesting combination of things, mm-hmm. but it, it's really a rewritten version of my doctoral research mm-hmm. uh, that I completed in 2018 at, at Durham University in the UK. And, and, you know, when you're doing that kind of a long-range, in-depth uh, sort of study and research, they always tell you, you better choose something that you really like because you're going to be in it for a few years. <laughs> and, and you better choose something that you know. And, um, you know, my background in ministry is in the worship ministry. When I first joined the staff at New Life, I was one of the worship leaders uh, here at the church and songwriters. And, and we had the privilege of, 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 you know, doing some albums with integrity music and all of that. So the contemporary worship scene was was sort of in a way like native territory for me. Um, and then the theology of hope was uh, is a really important one for me because 
uh, oftentimes it gets called eschatology and then it sounds scary. And then people say, oh, let's never talk about that. That's about the end times. And who really knows? <laughs> you know, and we file that under things we never need to discuss, right. um, which is a mistake because once we once we have a clear and robust vision of our hope, it actually inspires our our mission in the world. It actually inspires our ethics and our living. Mm. So as ethics and eschatology are linked. Um, mission and eschatology are linked. And worship and eschatology are linked. And and the the, the reason I wanted to put these two together is. I was so I'd heard and been part of offering critiques on the contemporary worship world, you know, oh, man, these songs are so cheesy or so <laughs> theologically thin and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, worship forms us. So we need to make sure that we have better songs and all of that. And and all of that's true. And I was, you know, definitely a, a big, you know, one of those adding my voice to, to that refrain. But I realized, you know what? I need to actually test this and to see in what way does worship form us? And mm. is it as simple as saying, write better songs, get better Christians? Mm. Or is the picture more complex than that? And so my, my research process was interdisciplinary in that I used sociological tools to analyze contemporary worship songs and services and then I, I dug into some theological reflection to reflect on some of those findings mm. and, uh, you know, see what we discovered. Well, what I what I find so interesting, too, because you, you never could have known that corporate worship would become such a contested hot button topic that it is now, at least in the West, in a pandemic. Yeah. I, like cards on the table. <laughs> I, I was sharing with a friend the other day, and maybe I shouldn't admit this on air, but I said something like, <laughs> I, I think the phrase digital church is actually an oxymoron. I don't actually know if that is truly the ecclesia as, as you know, Jesus spoke of it. And I'm wondering, as, you know, a bit of a sacramentalist and an Anglican in a non-denominational environment who researched and studied this, like, what what is so powerful about corporate worship? And, and how have you navigated some of the tensions in, like, a socially distanced environment that we're all having to kind of figure out right now? Well, I, I, you know, I've watched churches make a number of different decisions. One is to say, no, 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 we can't do anything. Right. And, and, you know, digital church is what we're going to do. And then we'll just, you know, sort of, I, I don't mean sell it, but we'll pitch it as this is the same one and the same. Um, right. And I understand churches who made that decision out of an abundance of caution. And in many parts of the country, that is really the only responsible decision to make. Right. Um, the, on the other hand, you have people who are like, ah, oh, you know, we don't need to worry about it. God will protect us. I do not uh, en endorse that approach. I think that is not loving our neighbor and that is reckless. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you have kind of this strange middle ground where you could meet safely and responsibly, but the quote unquote quality of the product wouldn't be the same. Mm -hmm. And I've watched certain pastors say, well, if the experience isn't going to be good or quality, then we're not mm -hmm. going to do it. And I, you know, personally, just offer my opinion, look, uh, pastors have taken enough beatings throughout the pandemic. So I certainly don't want to, you know, give anybody ammo to beat up their pastor here. But, right. but from my vantage point, I, I think it's a mistake. I think we need to salvage whatever breadcrumbs of a gathering of an embodied gathering mm -hmm. that we can safely and responsibly have, mm -hmm. you know, so so if it is socially distanced and I mean, and for, and for us, you know, we're running 20, 25 percent of capacity in a room. Um, some of the rooms are very large. And so that that feels OK. Some of the rooms are not large from our different congregations and it doesn't feel all that great. Right. But 
there's a conviction here that there, it, when the church gathers together, it's more than one plus one equals two. Something mysterious is happening. Something powerful is happening and that I think Jesus is alluding to when he says two or three of you gather in my name. There I am. There, there's something about the gathered church. And I, you know, I want to say for, for many young Christians and millennials, especially, there is this notion that, well, God's presence is everywhere. So why does it really matter? And I, I live in Colorado. People are all, all too happy to go out on a hike and say, I'm with the cathedral of, you know, and I get it. I, I, I do. I, you can certainly become aware of God's presence in nature. Absolutely. Right. I agree. And yet I think there is a particular sense of God's presence that is promised when the church gathers together. And, and I would root that biblically in, in Ephesians. You know, Paul talks about the church, Ephesians 2, as this building that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then he says, no, no not just any building. Actually, it's a temple uh, that he intends to fill. And then he goes on and says the church will be filled in, in, in a similar way that Christ is, the, is filled with the fullness of God. And then Ephesians 5 he says, go on being filled as you, you know, sing and, and, and pray and, and make music. And he's naming corporate worship practices. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's very important to understand or recover a theology that says there is a measure in which on our own we are dwelling places of God. But there is a special sense in which mm-hmm. you and me together as the church become the dwelling place of God. And, and we can't neglect that. Mm. Oh, that's good. As someone, you know, you've written on Christian hope and uh, thought a lot about that. Just this may be a strange question, but how would you describe or define for somebody what Christian hope even is? I, I would say the simplest way I could say it is it's resurrection. Mm-hmm. And and let me unpack that now. So we tend to think of, of hope as optimism, like it's almost like a wish. I just feel like everything's going to be OK. <laughs> the, the, the good thing about optimism is it's a positive appraisal about a future reality. So. Okay, that that's good. Yeah, it, it is like hope. It's not a negative appraisal about a future reality. It's positive, but but the problem with optimism or a wish is it's not grounded on anything. Um, resurrection, our future resurrection, is grounded on the resurrection of Christ that has already occurred. So if we're Easter people, then we have an Easter kind of hope. Our, our hope, the Nicene Creed, ends with the words, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And we look for that because it has already happened. We look back at that. So hmm. uh, so number one, it's not optimism. But number two, it's not escapism. Um, uh, for, for many evangelicals, particularly in the West, uh, our idea of hope is we're going to, again, shake the surly bonds of earth and ascend into the, the heavens and and disappear from everything physical. But as we talked about in the last segment, God, the Redeemer, is also God, the creator. And he does not intend to throw away or discard what he has created. So he intends to redeem it, to perfect it, to complete it. And what resurrection is, the resurrection is not throwing away the body and then giving us the 2.0 Iron Man suit or whatever, right, you know, right. resurrection is God taking the very one and the same body and transforming it. That's why when they found, they went in the tomb, they didn't see an old body and then Jesus with a new one. They saw an empty tomb with a, a reconstituted, a, you know, redeemed, glorified body. Mm-hmm. So resurrection prevents us from the error of optimism and it prevents us from the error of error of escapism. That in a nutshell is Christian hope. Glenn, we're really grateful for the amount of time you've given us. And uh, what we ended up talking about at the end, the last segment was your book, Worship and the World to Come, the research, the thought processes that you put into that. I'm wondering, 
what were the results of all the work you put in there? What were some of your uh, some of the things you noticed, some of your conclusions? Well, you know, one of the marks that, that you're doing, um, you know, research that is OK is when you come up with conclusions that you didn't expect. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, that happened for me. You know, I, I learned a lot from the, the, the sociological approach to to rituals is to recognize that the text of a ritual is not the same thing as the performance of a ritual. And I mean, look, let's just take an everyday example here of a wedding ceremony. Maybe, you know, you could find a couple different couples that, that odds are they use the same exact words for the vows. Hmm. Well, but that doesn't mean that the, the wedding ceremonies were the same. In fact, they probably were significantly different, not least because of the people saying right, those words, right. you know. And uh, and so so even from a, just a human perspective, the text of a ritual is not the same thing as the performance of a ritual. And for me, in, in studying worship songs and worship services, I was able to put these two things together uh, in a way that I think many many people don't. Many people look at songs and then they, they parse out these lyrics and they criticize it and they're like, oh, you know, this is so bad. And they forget that something happens in Christians when they sing those songs. And it could be, it could be whoa, whoa, whoa's. It could be hallelujahs. Mm. It could be the same phrase over and over again. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something is happening. So the, the, the long and short of it is I discovered that the songs that, that worship leaders and I had access to, uh, 25,000 worship leaders uh, through integrity music, a thousand of them responded to my, uh, survey and, and report. And uh, I asked them to do one of the things I asked them was to choose a song that brings them hope and then a song that brings their their church hope. Hmm. And I, I kind of you know compiled the list, analyzed the top 10 most named songs uh, by these worship leaders. And I discovered that, that the songs were overly focused on the present tense. They, they didn't seem to be very future oriented. Hmm. Uh, they were overly focused on the here, you know, proximate hmm. space. And, and overly focus on the personal case, you know, I, me, and my, not we, our, and us. And so, you know, when you evaluate that theologically, you're like, gosh, that, that's a little bit problematic. Is it because these songs are being written by people who are living in a very comfortable here and now? So that they're not singing songs of future hope, like, you know, just a simple contrast with some of these songs with the slave spirituals, for example, where they're always future oriented because the present is so painful. Mm. So, so it was a bit, a bit troubling, but, but yeah. then, uh, but then I went and, and began to do two focus groups with two, uh, churches, one in Dallas, one in Denver, both in comparable suburbs. And in my discovery with these focus groups, I, I realized, you know, these people are experiencing hope every time they come into church to worship, not because the songs are that great, not because the sermons are that great, but because something happens when Christ Christians gather in worship. And, mm -hmm. My proposal by the end of the book is I think we need a better theology of the spirit, um, specifically that the spirit is God's uh, eschatological presence. That's a fancy way of saying the spirit is how we foretaste the future. You know, mm -hmm. so, so when we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in, in corporate worship, we're really foretasting the future, even if we're not naming that in our songs. Uh, and, and then secondly, the spirit is how we remember God's power and ex and experience God's empowering um, presence, to borrow that phrase from Gordon Fee years ago, mm -hmm. God's empowering presence with us. And so why do people leave church feeling a sense of hope and, and uplift in their spirit? Because they've been reminded how great is our God. They've yeah. been reminded that Christ is with me and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And the people in my focus group, man, they're facing medical challenges, marital challenges, all kinds of stuff. 
And, and yet they would say, you know what? Every time I made the decision to come into church, I left feeling strengthened to face adversity. So it wasn't like these are people who had life go all according to plan. These are people that needed hope and they found it even though the songs weren't perfect. So, you know, my conclusion is, do we need to write better songs? Sure. Hmm. Do we need to preach better sermons? You bet. Do we need to make our, our worship services tell a bigger story with a better future? Absolutely. Hmm. And yet, in God in his kindness, meets us by his spirit and does something in us that is more than the sum of its parts uh, in, in terms of the service. So, Glenn, as if writing books and leading a church wasn't enough, you also have a blog that you write additional things into, and I highly encourage you to check Very it out, rarely. right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> At glennpackium.com is where you should go. But another topic that Brian and I have wrestled with a lot this year in particular is the issue mm-hmm. of justice. In fact, often when Brian and I talk about justice or racial reconciliation, sometimes the pushback is, you guys are pastors. Why don't you just stick to spiritual things? Why are you talking about things like justice? And you actually wrote a wonderful blog back in August entitled, Why We Work for Justice. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you wrote there? Yeah. First, let me say that I, I think that part of the reason we we can't put these two things together, there's a historical problem here where in the early 1900s, uh, social justice began to be associated with the social gospel. And there were, to be fair, uh, liberal theologians who said, well, we don't know about the resurrection of Jesus right. and we don't know about this or that, but hey, let's feed the poor. And and uh, sadly, that's remained a legacy in, in many denominational contexts. And so as a reaction to that, the opposite sort of movement began that said, well, no, 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 we're going to emphasize forgiveness of sins and repentance and eternal salvation and 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 all of that. So there be, there began to be i mean we're reaping a hun- the, the effects of a 100 year split between emphases on evangelism versus uh, social needs um and the tragedy is we don't realize that actually we have a theological problem here and the theological problem is we don't understand the kingdom when when we, you read the bible and you know in the old testament the idea of the lord's reign uh, the psalms say when the lord reigns let the earth rejoice and and in in that they would talk about his judgment. They would talk about the, the, a great reversal for the oppressed. They would talk about liberation. Uh, they would talk about the end of exploitation, and the, all of those themes are bound up. To, and they would talk about forgiveness of sins. So all of those themes are bound up with when the Lord returns to Zion. When the Lord returns to His people, we're going to see all these things. We're going to see uh, the hungry being fed. We're going to see sins being forgiven. We're going to see all of that. So the the, the Hebrew in the Hebrew mind. Um, what we call justice and what we call forgiveness are not separated things. They're together. And and so it, it made perfect sense that when Jesus shows up as the kingdom bringer, the inaugurator of the kingdom, the kingdom's king, he reads from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to preach good news hmm. to the poor, to preach gospel to the poor. And, 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 and so the gospels show Jesus doing all of the above, healing, uh, feeding, uh, providing for and um, of course forgiving and dying. Um, so, so our our issue as the church is to say, how do we reclaim kind of the kingdom paradigm here, the kingdom vision? And maybe for me, you know, for me, the best way to think about this is to say, um, our role as the church, the mission of the church, is to announce the kingdom, which. You know, some people say preach the gospel, but sometimes what they mean is preach forgiveness of sins. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. Preach the gospel technically means announce that Jesus is king. Say that he is Lord. 
And and let let that announcement be actually good news for the poor and good news for the oppressed. And then secondly, announce the kingdom. And then secondly, anticipate the kingdom. Begin to live now as it will be then. So so we have to ask ourselves, well, what would be what would it be like? What will it be like when Jesus's kingdom comes in in, in fullness? Mm. Will there be a hungry people? No. Will there be injustice? No. Will there be so so can we actually do all those things here and now? No, but we can as N.T. Wright is fond of saying, we can we can create these signposts right. that point to that. So even if they're feeble, uh, uh, weak attempts at a signpost, our little acts of caring for for the poor and all of that, and 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 and, and bringing reconciliation and understanding pain and hurt, mm. those are, are pointers that say, you know what? One day when the kingdom comes in fullness, every tear will be wiped away, not the tears of guilt and shame, but also the tears of oppression and exploitation. Love that. Well, we're so thankful for the time you've given to us. We'd love to have you on again sometime. And uh, as we close, why don't you tell people where can they find more of your writing, social media? Where can they pick up your book? Uh, where can people find you? Well, you mentioned my website, glennpackiam.com. That's Glenn with two N's and then Packiam is P-A-C-K-I-A-M. Uh, there's a little email list, a, li- a link to sign up for that on the website. I'm normally on Twitter at GPackium. I've taken a little three-month break. I'll jump back on after Thanksgiving. Nice. I'm on Instagram only at the moment, which is also at GPackium. Give me a follow there if, you, if you'd like. The books are, man, wherever books are sold, you know, whether that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, wherever you like to, like to get books. Um, there's an audio book version of Bless Broken Given. There is not one for worship in the world to come, uh, but there are Kindle versions of both and, you know, all of that. So, awesome. yeah. Absolutely. Well, Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much today. Thanks so much, Ian and Brian. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about an ethicist who says he doesn't think we should live past the age of 75. And then we're joined by Isabella McMillan from Operation Christmas Child. You're listening to The Common. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Ian, we, we talked in the first hour uh, early, earlier in the show about COVID and all that's going on. And President-elect uh, Biden, he la- yesterday announced his um, COVID task force, which people were like, wow, this is a great thing. These people are doctors, they're epidemiologists, uh, and, and they're going to look at COVID and hopefully uh, maybe take a different tact. And, and everyone's anxious to hear uh, what they're going to do, but also what it did was everybody looked at who these people are on the task force. Uh, and there is one particular name, uh, that has gotten a lot of attention, a lot of attention. Uh, his name is Ezekiel Emanuel. And we've got two articles here. Uh, why don't you take one of them and, uh, give us a little bit of the background of who Ezekiel Emanuel is and why this is, uh, raising some eyebrows for people. I would be happy to, as a fellow eyebrow raiser, I will, uh, read the first <laughs> article here from Relevant. It says, President elect Joe Biden has already assembled a task force to target the most immediate crisis his new administration will face, getting the COVID-19 pandemic under control. 
One of the members is an oncologist and bioethicist named Ezekiel Emanuel, who once wrote an essay for The Atlantic arguing that life is not worth living after 75 years old. Living too long is also a loss, Emanuel wrote in the October 2014 edition of The Atlantic. It renders many of us, if not disabled, then faltering and declining, a state that may not be worse than death, but is nonetheless deprived. Emanuel went on to argue that, quote, creativity, originality, and productivity are pretty much gone for the vast, vast majority of us by 75. The argument is that modern science has gone overboard in the, quote, valiant effort to cheat death and prolong life as long as possible, stating that, I think this manic de uh, desperation to endlessly extend life is misguided and potentially destructive. Emmanuel's essay has put Team Biden in an awkward spot, given, this is exactly what I was thinking, that COVID-19 is particularly dangerous for those <laughs> over 75, and the president-elect himself is 77. Emmanuel made it clear that he opposes physician-assisted uh, physician suicide and any form of euthanasia. I won't actively end my life, Emmanuel writes in the essay, but I won't try to prolong it either. I think that's probably enough meat for us to begin talking yep. about this. Brian, uh, how does that rub you? Uh, so I feel like there's two streams here. Like, how does that rub me just as a doctor saying that? And then sure. how does that and what's the reaction then to him being part of the COVID-19 task force? Yeah. And, uh, and so I think what he's saying is, uh, while it might make sense to some people, I think it's really problematic to have a doctor. You, the last line you said there say, I won't actively end my life, but I won't try to prolong it either. Well, he is going to have a say as a doctor and also on this mm -hmm. task force about whose lives we maybe do try to prolong. So it's one thing to say, I won't prolong my own life, which is really kind of dark. Uh, but but when when you are a doctor who is supposed to be helping people uh, to have this kind of worldview, I think, is really problematic in general. Yeah. Uh, but then when you take it to COVID-19, where, as you said and as you read, the majority of people who it's most dangerous for are over the age of 75 or around the age of 75. And you've got somebody on the task force who feels that. Maybe it's not worth prolonging lives over 75. That becomes really dangerous in that conversation because then it becomes the question of, well, uh, you know, are we deciding who gets the care and who doesn't? How does that drive what we do here? And so I think both of them, um, I, I guess I would say I find it surprising that Biden would put him on the task force, too, with knowing that this is out there. But. How about you? How does it strike you from a personal side, just reading those words, but then also the political side of being part of COVID-19 task force here? It does make me wonder a little bit about the universe of ethicists in, in general <laughs> uh, and someone who's not an ethicist or a philosopher. Um, I do. I guess I'm not all that surprised having dipped a toe in some of these conversations before. I can kind of predict some of the logic behind it. And so, I, yeah, I don't necessarily think there's the shock and awe knowing some of his background that some other people mm -hmm. are expressing. I'm sort of like, well, yeah, yeah. that's mm, almost an expected position. I, I still disagree with it. Um, I mean, aggressively <laughs> for a, a number of reasons, even just thinking about uh, my own grandparents who are in their early nineties and living rather vibrant lives. And I, you know what I mean? Mm. Like there's, it, I, it is hard for me, I guess, to not personalize it a little bit to my own experience, which is not yeah. necessarily what an ethicist is supposed to do. Um, but in this other article from the MIT Technology Review, asking some questions that maybe you and I were asking. The first question is, uh, it's been five years since you published the essay. Any second thoughts as you near the deadline? 
His response was, not really. And then it says <laughs> laughing. And I was like, oh, it's interesting. <laughs> Talks about it being uh, the, asked, isn't that kind of an extreme position? He says, it's not an extreme position. I'm not going to die at 75. I'm not committing suicide. I'm not asking for euthanasia. I'm not. I'm going to stop taking medications with the sole justification that the medication or intervention is going to prolong my life. Um, what I do find interesting, though, they talk about uh, the title of the essay being Why I Hope to Die. This, I think, is an interesting point. Because his response is, as you probably know better than everyone else, it's editors that choose titles and not the authors. Yeah. That's obviously yeah. meant to be provocative. And it is, I would say, successfully. <laughs> this, <laughs> it worked. Is, this is not the point of this segment. But isn't it wild, though, that like a subject matter this sensitive could be so potentially derailed by a yeah. sort of clickbait, arguably misleading title? Like, why are we doing that? Like, that's not his position necessarily or what he actually says, but that's the headline that gets slapped on there. I don't know. That's a, that's a rabbit trail. I just found that to be uh, not helpful. Yeah. Interesting. In that same article later, they ask him what's wrong with simply enjoying an extended life and listen to how he answers this. He said, these people who live a vigorous life to 70, 80, 90 years of age, you were just describing your grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, when I look at what those people quote do, Almost all of it is what I classify as play. It's not meaningful work. They're riding motorcycles. They're hiking, which can all have value. Don't get me wrong. But if that's the main thing in your life, uh, that's probably not a meaningful life. And I, I just find that really jarring that, hey, he I get it. He's an ethicist, but he's he's gauging what it defines a meaningful life. Yeah. Uh, and, and the answer to that is not let's kind of challenge people of that age to do more meaningful things. If that's what you want to, it's instead going. So therefore their lives aren't worth, it's not worth living to those ages. I just find that to be jarring when I read this for the first time. Um, yeah. So what's the Christian response to this? As we close up this segment, what is the, <laughs> the pro-life Christian response? I'm kind of teeing this, this up to you to we often talk about the beginning of life, but what's the response to somebody who has this kind of look towards the end of life? Yeah, I mean, I, I do just want to say that I'm not someone who should probably be weighing in on that at all. Like just in general, um, Give a radio show. as someone. Yeah, but even that feels like great. 37 year old Ian's going to weigh in on, you know, hi, how should you live in your 80s? But we have talked before and you've referenced guys like John Piper who have talked about the significance of not just checking out in your retirement years. Um, which I, I do think is a is a good call to action. But I also want to push back on that a little bit and talk about like the significance, the sacred significance of play, of recreation, mm. of rest, yeah. of being with your family. Like, again, I'm not an ethicist, but to say, well, you're not like earning a salary or contributing to culture. So that's not useful. I'm like, well, maybe that's the maybe that's the point. Maybe we see everything in a utilitarian lens as useful or not. And I And I actually think that the gospel has something to say to that as well. So that's not, that's kind of my non-answer answer. I got a whole bunch more I could say to that, but I'll stop there. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, we, we'll put these articles up at our Facebook page. Like it, there's going to be opinions on these. We'd uh-huh. love to hear yours. Go to our Facebook page, the common good radio show coming up next to Facebook post, uh, quoting Alan Hirsch and some of his words about the missional movement uh, with, we're going to discuss these interesting words from Alan Hirsch next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Ian, I feel like there are some important, uh, not very random or weird holidays today, but I don't know what they are, so I feel like you need to tell me them. 
I feel sarcastic, Brian. No, I told you yesterday I love this portion of the show. I've come <laughs> to love it. All right. Well, I'm guessing you're going to love one of these. And I, my guess is I've been about 50-50 in those guesses. So we'll see where this goes. It is uh, National Forget-Me-Not Day. National no. Forget-Me-Not. Okay. No feeling either way? I don't. I don't. Okay. Well, here, here's the one I'm guessing that you might be a fan of. It is National Vanilla Cupcake Day. I would be a fan of that one. Yes. Yes. Uh, would you prefer vanilla cupcake or chocolate cupcake? I don't want to spend any more time talking about these ridiculous holidays. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give any more airtime. <laughs> all right. So we'll end with vanilla cupcake. Holiday. Happy vanilla <laughs> cupcake day to all of you out there uh, on Facebook. Michael Frost, he was posting about Alan Hirsch. Uh, and it says this, he wrote, Alan Hirsch was recently asked to write an article on whether he thought the missional movement has had its day. This is what he wrote. Before we read these, what Alan Hirsch answered, uh, maybe give people, because, you know, as pastors and stuff, we kind of know what the missional movement is and we know who Alan Hirsch is. But maybe give people uh, just a real basic understanding. When we use the phrase missional movement in churches, what are we even talking about? Well, it really depends on who you ask. It is certainly, at least at this point, the kind of term that a number of people have different perspectives on. But really, in a lot of ways, it was a reaction to the attractional movement where, you know, the general principle was we attract people to the main event, which was often a Sunday morning gathering. And uh, that is the main means by which we're going to reach people. The missional movement you can hear the word mission there uh, was really it really set out to like rethink and redefine the the nature of the church and to see not just churches, but also our individual lives as as missional, as sort of sent people uh, to live missionally in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our cities and how we do that. You know, again, that's the rich diversity of how people have interpreted that term. But Alan Hirsch, Michael Frost, Hugh Halter and, and others have, have certainly been at the helm uh, at, at least in like my tiny universe, they're yeah. they're sort of the titans of that language and uh, hosting conferences, writing books about you know ways to actually live it out, and and doing a, a pretty prolific job at right. it. If you ask me, I, I think Hirsch and Frost are are some of the most brilliant minds, not just around this topic, but in general. Like I I I consistently find their writing and even just their musings to be really helpful really timely to the pulse of culture, but also just like deeply scriptural. So I, I personally am someone who is grateful for them and have been formed by a lot of their ways of thinking. And that's what makes this interesting is Alan Hirsch here. Michael Frost is posting about Alan Hirsch was asked what, whether he thought the missional movement has had its day. So is it kind of passed? And, and I think the reality is with especially COVID and people having the Sunday, the big morning Sunday morning gathering taken away from them, it's kind of put a highlight into what, you know, the missional movement I'm using air quotes has gotten right here. Like what the Alan Hirsch's of the world and them have been saying all along. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, it's almost uh, been prophetic towards what we now have lost during COVID. And so I think it's interesting that someone was asking him if he thought it had had its day. <laughs> and so, um, and so he was answering this question and Michael Frost again, put this up on his Facebook page. It says the, the, the degraded state of the contemporary of contemporary evangelical Christianity necessitates the very foci that the missional movement brings. And he's going to give seven things about the missional movement. I thought it'd be helpful for us to read these uh, and as pastors uh, reflect upon them and, and see what people think about them. And so 
let's do this way. I'll read them. And uh, we could talk about each one as they go. Number one, he says, a radical recentering on the life teachings and ministry of Jesus. He says, the missional movement brings a radical recentering on the life teachings and ministry of Jesus Christ. What do you think he's getting at with that number one there? I mean, I'm obviously always in favor of that period. I think part of where yeah. it gets tricky is a lot of churches think that's what they're doing. You know, I think it would, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of churches that would say, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> not interested in uh, a recentering on the life teachings and ministry of Jesus. I think again, to, you know, borrow John Mark Comer language and Orberg and others who talk about apprenticing Jesus. You know, I think that's part of what Hirsch is getting at here. A recentering isn't just simply a recentering of our intellectual ascent toward these things, but actually apprenticing the life teaching and ministry of Jesus in our both individual realities, but also like our shared communal realities. I think that's that's a part of what he's getting at when he talks about a, a radical recentering because it does. And we, you know, we've talked about that on the show. Mm-hmm. We've we've certainly no shortage of services where you could watch all sixty minutes and think, was there Jesus in that at all? Did <laughs> yes, that like yes. we learned about being a better prayer or about some generosity initiative? But so I think it's certainly always like a timely reminder. But uh, part of what gets tricky is you know we disagree on how to actually do that. Right. Number two is a big one. He says it's a theology of lordship and yeah. not just personal salvation. What's he getting at on that one? This to me, the word that I keep going back to is allegiance. You know, the idea that the kingdom of God has a king and it's not me and it's not you. And he's king, not king elect. You know, oftentimes the thought is I pray a prayer now and then I'm still king of my own kingdom, but I get to go to heaven when I die which is what the gospel is. And I would agree with Hirsch and say it's it's much less about praying some prayer as a sort of fire insurance so that I don't go to the bad place and instead go to the good place. It's about a life submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think when we forget that component, um, it's what often leads people to look at Christianity and say, well, they look exactly like the rest of us. So what's really the point? Mm. Uh, number three, he says, and this is one we've talked a lot about, and we had a great conversation with Glenn Packiam just about, is a call to integrate justice into mission, a call to integrate justice into mission. What do you think he's going for there? Oh, gosh, I could talk about this one for a long time. I, <laughs> to me, I think a, a church that isn't seriously grappling with injustice is going to find itself soon to not have uh, much a place at all, I think. Often there's a lot of skittishness around like we don't want to be a social justice church and whatnot. But I think at the very least, it's really hard to read Genesis Revelation and not see that justice is deeply important to the heart of God. And if the Great Commission is still a thing, and I believe that it is, integrating the two to me seems, you know, like a no brainer almost. Yeah. So let me read four through seven here, and I'm going to let you choose whichever one you want to kind of leave us with here. He says, number four, he says, incarnational forms of church planting. Uh, Number five, a recovery of full biblical typology of ministry. Uh, His is the APEST that he talks about, uh, Mm -hmm. A-P-E-S-T. Number six, a recovery of the priority of discipleship. And number seven, calling the church to rally around God's purposes in the world as opposed to theological navel gazing. Uh, man, each of these require their own segment, but why don't you choose one to finish us off with here? 
Gosh, why I can't even. Those are all so good. (laughs) Yeah, I think honestly, what it does come down to me, and this has sometimes been what has been the criticism of the missional moment is is number six, the recovery of the priority of discipleship. I would almost say maybe at times because that's a formation question. That is again back to apprenticing Jesus. It isn't just about attracting people to some event, but it also isn't just about keep people keep sending them on mission. If we're if we're doing either of those and not being discipled into the way of Jesus, being formed mm-hmm. into the likeness of Jesus, um, then both fall way short. So I would I would probably have to say, number six, a recovery of the priority of discipleship. And discipleship not just as, oh, I attended a class or I finished a workbook. It's way more robust and way more beautiful, but also way more messy than that. And I think I think Hirsch is spot on recovering that has got to be a priority. As is often the case with Alan Hirsch, there's so much meat and so much to digest there. So we only gave it kind of a cursory view, uh, but you can find that up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. As we all think about, even in these changing times, what's the church look like? What is the priorities of the church going forward? Uh, give us your opinion on that. We'll have that up at our Facebook page. Coming up next, we're going to be joined by Isabella McMillan from Samaritan's Purse to talk about Operation Christmas Child. That's next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined by Isabella McMillan from uh, Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child. Isabella, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Absolutely our pleasure. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like. Well, my name is Isabella McMillan, and I have the privilege to serve now full-time with Operation Christmas Child as a national spokesperson and also as the Speakers Bureau Manager. But I started in Operation Christmas Child actually on the other end of the shoebox as a recipient. Wow. Okay, so I have about 10 questions with regards to that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but, but just to start, I'd love, from, from your perspective, what, what was that impact like for you receiving that gift? Well, first of all, to understand the impact, let me just share a little bit about the background. So I grew up in communist Romania. So the big picture with communist Romania for us was the fact that we were not allowed to worship. We, were, we didn't have uh, free speech and free religion. We didn't have the freedoms that we enjoy in this country mm-hmm. today. And we also suffered, suffered under severe poverty. And so those two things combined, we really didn't know about who God was. We were not allowed to say the name of God out loud. We were not allowed to go to church. We were not allowed to have a Bible because that could cost your life. So we didn't know anything about God. And he entered my life in a very unlikely way when I was seven years old, when my brother and I by accident found a hidden Bible in the floorboard of our little apartment where we lived. And that's how we learned about who God is. And then we started going to a little underground church Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 11 years old. And when I received my shoebox as a 13-year-old, that was the first time when I experienced God's unconditional love, the way I was reading it in the pages of this book called the Bible that I didn't know what to think of. I didn't know if this God was real on the pages of the Bible or if this is just a really nice story, but I wanted God to show to me that he is real. And it was in the form of that little colorful shoebox that was like a splash of color entering our black and white world Mm -hmm. um, that he really showed to me that he is real and he knows my name and he listens to me. Now, there's a whole lot more to this story, but just to answer quickly your question, that is the big picture of, of how I experienced it. 
That's awesome. Uh, that's such wow. a powerful story. Uh, I'm wondering, we do Operation Christmas Child at our church and, and people fill the shoe boxes and they probably just think they're just giving, you know, some nice toys or whatever else to kids or people around the world. But this made a deeply spiritual impact on you. I'd love to know more how that happened for you. And also, is that a story you hear for a lot of people who receive shoe boxes? That is a very loaded question, but <laughs> it is just such a neat thing to see how, yes, shoeboxes are tangible, simple things, right? School supplies, hygiene items, toys, they are very tangible, very simple. But for someone like me or, or children around the world who are receiving these shoeboxes, this was the first time I had colorful pencils. This was the first time I had a soap that smelled good. Mm. This was the first time that I had school supplies. When I took them to school, I was the coolest kid on the block, right? <laughs> because nobody else had anything like that. So yes, the items are so meaningful in, in, the, in the idea that, yes, we never had anything like that before. And it meant so much to us. But the reality is the items eventually wear out. I no longer have any of those items. But what stayed with me is how that box made me feel. Mm-hmm. It made me feel as I was seen. I was not forgotten. Here I was living in communist Romania where we felt like the entire world just turned a blind eye to, to what was happening in our country, that nobody cared uh, if people were dying, if, if people were mistreated. We felt like nobody cared. And this was the first time ever that we felt like someone from the outside saw us and we were not forgotten and they cared for us. Mm -hmm. Now for me specifically, the spiritual impact came with the fact that I started praying to God that he will show himself real to me Mm -hmm. after I started going to that little underground church. And my pastor there taught me how to pray. I had no idea. I, I read about prayer in the Bible, but I never heard someone pray. How do you do this prayer thing without seeing someone played mm-hmm. out in front of you, right? And so he taught me how to pray. And he just said, Isabella, you pray to God like he's your best friend. You tell him what's mm-hmm. on your heart, what's on your mind, and he will answer. So what mm-hmm. I prayed for was snow. And the reason why <laughs> I prayed for snow was because... In the winters, we have really harsh winters in Romania, really cold. I don't like cold, not to this day, but we have really harsh winters. And you know, in the winters, it's dark outside at 5, 30 in the afternoon. Now we had to go to bed whenever it was dark outside because we had no electricity. So it was just pitch dark. So we had to go to bed. Now I was 13 years old. My brother was 16. I don't know if you know any 13 and 16 year olds that want to go to bed at 5, 30 in the afternoon, <laughs> but I don't. And so we didn't want to go to bed at 5.30. And the only way that mom and dad would let us go outside and play past 5.30 is if it snowed outside. So that Mm. was kind of like our saving grace. So I prayed and prayed and prayed for snow that God would show himself real to me by answering that simple prayer. And Mm. I just remember my prayers were so simple, but so expectant. I expected Mm. God to answer my prayer. Mm -hmm. And my answer came, in that little colorful shoebox. And the way that happened is that I had in the corner of my little box among all these amazing colorful items that were there, this little silver and blue something that I could just hold in my hand. And I didn't know what to think of it. And I was holding it up like this, trying to figure out what is this little thing? And Mm. a little boy who was passing me by, he took my hand with his hand and he said, you have to shake it, shake it, shake it. That's how that Mm. works. Mm. 
And in that moment, the most beautiful silver and blue snow fell inside that little snow globe like I have never seen before. (laughs) And that is how in that moment, all that head knowledge that I had about God traveled Mm. those critical 18 inches down to my heart. (laughs) And, And I got it that he is not just a character in the pages of a storybook, but he's a true and real God who sees us and who knows us and who cares for us. So that's how the spiritual impact came Mm. for me specifically. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story, by the way. I, as everyone knows, 2020 has been just the most bizarre year ever. And I know that it's impacted people, especially globally in very different ways. Why is something like a shoebox so critical and so important right now? Oh, bizarre probably doesn't even describe 2020 at this point, right? We all have experienced it. And you are right. It's globally. It's being felt globally everywhere. So the way I look at it, I am still at home with my family. I still can go out shopping. I still can pack box. And Mm -hmm. this year, more than ever, children are so isolated and they are so in places where they are in hopeless situations now more than ever they need to hear the hope of the gospel and this year i had to cancel multiple multiple mission trips that i was right. planning on going on and i couldn't be there to share the gospel with children that i have heart for and people that i have a heart for and this is a way that i still can make sure that the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And Mm. all it takes is for me to continue to have the same fun with my children and my family at home and my church group and pack shoeboxes in the comfort of our own living room. And I cannot imagine a better way for me to continue to do this. So if you are at home listening, if any of your listeners are out there wondering, is this still happening in 2020? Yes, it's happening more than ever because children need to hear the gospel. They need it. They need that hope. And as you pack your shoeboxes, just make sure you don't pack any of those snow globes anymore because they are no longer allowed. <laughs> uh, Isabella, we're so glad you came on with us. Just real briefly, uh, if people, you know, their church may not be doing this, where can they go to get more information to know what to do next? Where, where could people go? Absolutely. Our website is your best resource, SamaritanSpurs.org slash OCC. And our National Collection Week, guys, it's next week, mm-hmm. November 16th through the 23rd. That is our National Collection Week. You go on our website, SamaritanSpurs.org slash OCC. You put in your zip code if you packed your shoeboxes already, and you can find your closest drop-off location. We have about 5,000 of those across the country. And if you're not comfortable going out and packing, or maybe you are quarantined at home, then guess what? You can go on the same website and you can pack a box online and we will pack it for you here. You can pick the items that you would like to go in there. So pack a box where you are physically. And if you're not able to do that, pack a box online. Mm -hmm. Children need to hear the hope of the gospel. So thank you for packing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Isabella McMillan uh, from Samaritan's Purse, Operation Christmas Child. We're thrilled that you joined us. Thank you so much. And let us just tell everybody out there, go pack those boxes. Yeah. Uh, Get on the website, pack those boxes. It really does make a difference. Isabella, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. 
Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We're glad to have you with us as we close out this Tuesday show of The Common Good. Uh, As we close up the show, and a lot of us just wrestling right now with uh, all that's going on in our world, whether it be COVID or uh, the fallout from the election and what's going to happen, and we feel so divided. Uh, And it was a very interesting uh, kind of cultural moment this weekend. Saturday afternoon, uh, Joe Biden gets gets uh, declared the winner of the presidential election by all of the media outlets. And uh, on that night of Saturday Night Live was going to be Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle was hosting. Uh, and I think everyone was kind of uh, anticipating what's he going to say in this moment. And uh, he did a bit of a monologue, I believe it was at the end of the show. Uh, where he he spoke. And, and I want to play some of it because it's really kind of flying around Twitter right now. Last I saw it had been viewed by like 2.1 million people. I want to play a part of it where he gets at uh, how people might be must be feeling and, and a little bit of the division and, and kind of his kind of pointing towards unity, all this different thing. So this Dave Chappelle, who is a comedian, but also uh, somebody who, who can really, uh, as Ian has often said, comedians are often the prophets in our in our culture. And so I think Dave Chappelle acts that way here. So this is about a minute, uh, 46, almost two minutes long. So give a listen to this. And then Ian and I are going to close the show by talking about it. I would implore everybody who's celebrating the day to remember. It's good to be a humble winner. Remember when I was here four years ago? Remember how bad that felt? Remember that half the country right now still feels that way. Please remember that. Remember that for the first time in the history of America, the life expectancy of white people is dropping because of heroin, because of suicide. All these white people out there that feel that anguish, that pain, that mad because they think nobody cares. Maybe they don't. Let me tell you something. I know how that feels. I promise you, I know how that feels. If you're a police officer, and every time you put your uniform on, you feel like you got a target on your back. You're appalled by the ingratitude that people have when you would risk your life to save them. Oh, man, believe me. Believe me. I know how that feels. Everyone knows how that feels. But here's the difference between me and you. You guys hate each other for that. And I don't hate Anybody, I just hate that feeling. That's what I fight through. That's what I suggest you fight through. You got to find a way to live your life. You got to find a way to forgive each other. You got to find a way to find joy in your existence in spite of that feeling. All right, Ian, I don't know if you saw that live, Dave Chappelle. I, I certainly didn't stay up. I used to watch Saturday Night Live, and now I go to bed much earlier than that. But uh, whether you saw it live or or playing afterwards, just what was your take as you saw Dave Chappelle kind of talking on the day where the election got called? Well, I don't have the capacity to watch anything live in our house. We don't uh, we don't have cable. So oh, that valid is point. not even never. not even like something on NBC. You can't watch that live. Nope. Not, not unless it's streaming. That okay. is uh, the only option afforded to us. I um, I I actually wasn't that surprised. Dave is certainly one of those guys, and I'm sure plenty of people will either love him or hate him or might be in the middle and wonder who are we talking about. But he yeah. has been, I think, fairly consistent with a sort of 
prophetic way of seeing things. And I don't know if you saw his most recent, you know, David Letterman has that Netflix show. Um, well, what's it called? My next guest needs no introduction or something like that. He, uh, they actually did a socially distanced thing in, you know, the, the little town in Ohio where he lives. And I think I've, I think I've told that story where I met him in Ohio. Have I told that story here before? No. Uh-uh. Oh, well, maybe, maybe for another time. Either way, like having just watched that and his kind of observations about, about the world and about parenting and politics and justice and all that. If it, it felt, I mean, I think people probably expected he's going to really, really slam one side and really, really cheer the other. But for him, for him to say things like, hey, remember the people are suffering. And he talks about addicts. He talks about, like, can you imagine what it must be like to be a police officer right now? To, to put on that uniform and to head out into a world, you know, as chaotic as ours. Like, it, it, seemed, it seemed like he was, he was trying to, to really portray something unifying, at least to some degree. And I, I mean, I think the line that really stood out to me where he says, I, I don't hate anybody. I just, I just yeah. hate that feeling and talking mm-hmm. about finding a way to forgive people. And, and again, I know that it's a comedian and it's SNL, but part of me felt like, man, Chappelle is taking us to church right now. And I, exactly. I, I found that to be encouraging. Just hear me. I'm not saying that I endorse everything he's ever said or done. It just right. felt like there was a moment on a platform that was surprising where someone was saying something that felt hopeful and unifying. I thought, yeah, more of that, please. I, I, I was, uh, I was impressed. And, and as we kind of close up shop today, I wonder uh, what would you say to the people who are out there going, you know what? I want the other side to suffer. We've been suffering for four years, eight years, whatever. I, I, I think they could use a little suffering. They could use a little feeling bad. I don't want to forgive other people who have hurt me or who have spoken badly or, or, or who are just on the other side. Speak maybe to the Christ follower, but also just in general to people who, who may be feeling that way, that, no, I think there's uh, some legitimate suffering that needs to happen here. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would first say to someone who's not a Christ follower, you know, you, you got to decide for yourself how you're going to live and how you're going to feel. For the Christ follower, though, um, I don't believe that we are given the option to, to not forgive, to uh, wish well to love even those who would persecute us or belittle us that we would categorize as our enemy. Like I think about even the types of enemies that people must've been thinking about when Jesus and Peter and Paul were saying things like this. Um, we're intense. Let's not pretend that like, wow, the only enemies they had back then were people that were like a little rude to them. Like, you know, the, the level of things that they were enduring and, and for Jesus to still say, yeah, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So I, I, I guess I will say I can understand an instinct toward someone who's wronged you to not want to forgive. I think we've all felt that to hold on to bitterness. I would also say holding on to those things really only hurts yourself. We all know that. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. deeply, uh, you know, it's like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. That's that's something that I think we've experienced. But if we if we want to find a way forward holding onto our grudges and digging our heels in is just, I don't believe the way to do it. And for the Christ follower specifically, it's not life in the kingdom. It's not the kind of life that we're not only invited to, but as Christ followers, we're, we're commanded to live in a very upside down way. When the rest, the rest of the world says, uh, yeah, we're going to keep screaming, keep pointing a finger. Christ followers are, I think, invited to live in a, in a very, very different counterintuitive and countercultural way. And I think we have a great opportunity to do that. That's well put, man. I love his phrase there of being a humble winner. I think there's, yeah, if right. we all could learn that sort of posture, uh, our country would be 
uh, a much better place. So go watch this. If you didn't get a chance to see it, we've got it up on our Facebook page. Uh, thought it was important as we've been talking a lot in the last week or more about unity and and humility and what that looks like. I thought, uh, as Ian said, Dave Chappelle took us to church here a little bit on Saturday Night Live and would love to know your feedback. Go ahead and watch that and let us know. Well, another day in the books. If you missed our long interview with Glenn Packiam, I hope you go back and find that on the podcast. It'll be well worth your time. We'll be back with you tomorrow from four until six. Until then, uh, we hope you have a great night. For Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.